I want to make today's teaching an offering of, to the memory of uh, uh, a Zen teacher who just died last week. His name was um, Kobenchino Oragawa. Came to this country in uh, oh, 30 years ago when he was 35 years old. He died last week. He came at the request, he came from Japan at the request of uh, Suzuki Roshi. The person who told me this news the other night is one of the five lineage transmission disciples of um, Kovinchino. And uh, she called to say that she had heard the word. He died in a quite tragic drowning accident in uh, Switzerland, along with his five-year-old daughter. So um, I... uh, I thought I, I, I thought I would mention it while we were sitting, but I thought I would tell you about it better now and make today's teaching um, a teaching in his memory. And uh, I said, tell me, uh, Carolyn Atkinson, who called me to tell me about it, I said, tell me a little bit about Coben. I, I only knew about him. So she told me that he'd come 30 years ago, and she said uh, Suzuki brought him from... Um, Japan for him to help establish Tassahara and to um, firmly establish the form in Tassahara. She said, that's very important. She said, because after he did that, Coben spent the next 30 years breaking every form (laughs) and uh, really living out a life that was meant to indicate that the form is not where we're going. The form is the form, and it's the transformation of the heart to kindness that really matters. And... um, she told me uh, that uh, his, I said, what was the central thing that he taught? And she said, well, what he taught got easier and easier over the years, less and less complex, uh, more and more direct. She said, someone asked him uh, after uh, September 11th last year, what can I do possibly in my spiritual life to console myself at all in the wake of this terrible trauma to all of us? And he reflected a little bit, and uh, he said, um, try to do one kind act intentionally every day. And I thought it's a very simple teaching, but um, I was thinking about it this morning as we sat, and I was giving instructions for sitting practice, and I remember I said, smile. And I said, it's a faith statement. There's many things. It relaxes the face. It unclenches the jaw. It relaxes you into your body. You certainly feel a little bit of rapture in the body and the mind when you smile. But uh, really, it's a faith statement that smiling is one of the things we can do. That relaxing into this moment and say, this moment, I am alive. I can feel my body. I am here. This moment, I am still, um, is still mine. Is still mine. So, I like that kind of faith statement. In this moment, I am still here. I can still be alive. And I can still see past the boundaries of my own self and do something for somebody else, do one act of kindness. Can't do an act of kindness without somebody else there. Every act of kindness is relationship, is relational. You know, we take care of ourselves, but it, there's a way in which taking care of ourselves is a kindness. But we often think, most often think, I think, about uh, kindness, generosity of spirit, as requiring noticing someone else. 
And noticing someone else is the way that we stay alive in this world, I think. Stay relational, we stay connected. So I want to talk a little bit about how that connection (coughs) to other people and the possibility that we can stay connected up to the very end and under all kinds of dire circumstances is really the faith that I have. It's actually faith in the inherent goodness of human beings under all kinds of circumstances. I, uh, I don't watch television at all, but I did this week because um, my friends called and said, now you have to turn on the television. You have to look, they're going to have a rerun of uh, the experience of taking the miners out from under the ground. You said you have to look at the faces of the people around and the faces of the miners as they came out. So I did look a little bit, and I did read about it in the paper afterwards. Really, tremendously stirring story about the amount of effort, the amount of hope. I want to read you just a little bit. You probably all know way more than this. Um, at the news conference today, um, this is in the newspaper the day after, at uh, the medical center, five of the miners described seeing the wall of water flooding in on them, trying to escape as the water rose to their waist, then retreating to their chamber, which they knew was the highest ground they could reach. We thought a couple of us were having heart attacks from the anxiety or whatever, just having trouble breathing, and we just went in there and sat down said Thomas Foy, 52. But once they started getting air in there, then guys started feeling better and we could start barricading. The miners had tried to build a wall against the water with cinder blocks and canvas tarpaulins, but the water kept coming, Mr. Foy said, until the air pressure pushed it back. At one point, Mr. Foy noticed a lunch pail still holding a sandwich and two sodas bobbing in the water. The sandwich was still dry, he said with a smile. So I took a bite and passed it to the next guy. That's the line. That's the line. It makes me cry now, as it did when I read it. I took a bite and I passed it to the next guy. That's what we do. That's what we do. When completely the chips are down, that's the kind of hearts we have. We have to take a bite. We pass it to the next guy. My hair stands on end. If we knew that all the time, the world would be so different. We would be way ahead on sharing. I think, well, those people were their friends. But what I think about really is what are really the dimensions of friendship? Are there um, limits to it? was very touched by the description that one of them gave of the fact that they tied themselves together. So they tied, we tied ourselves together so that if they drowned, it wouldn't be difficult for them to find all our bodies. Well, imagine. You know? and, thinking about, and of course, they wrote notes. Just like people left telephone messages on 9-11. They wrote notes and put them in a lunchbox that said, I love you. Everybody in their last will writes, I love you. They think about, how is the other person out there going to feel about this loss? And what can I do to make it okay? I can tell them I love them. They think about, what are the limits of friendship? I want to tell you that in the Metta Sutta, 
It says, may all beings be happy, whatever their living nature. Omitting none, three lines later. Those that are near and those that are far away, those that can be seen and those that cannot, those that are already born and those to be born, may all beings be happy. comes from really, I think, visioning our connection with people. Omitting none means I've made everyone my friend. Valuing all beings, making them all your family. I was thinking a lot about um, the sense of uh, comfort that one has when one feels at home. When you say, make yourself at home. What that means. Make yourself at home means make yourself comfortable. It means relax. Everybody here is your family. Say, well, phew, I'm at home. What about if everyone was at home in the world? We could all say, phew. Everybody here is my family. I mean, it's really the only home we ever had. Home, the idea of, I own this house. I own this condo. So, Strange, isn't it, to own something? Say, this piece of the world, I own it. You know, we're all breathing the same air and drinking the same water. On Sunday, I uh, went to uh, a uh, uh, Jubilee Mass at St. Raphael's Church in San Rafael. Um, Seventeen nuns, one of them a very good friend of mine, were being honored for, uh, um, they were jubilarians. And my friend, uh, my friend Mary, who's been my friend for 30 years, um, was being honored for 50 years of profession as a Dominican nun. Um, Sister Antonine, Antoninus uh, had 75 years professed. She was 19 years old, so she's 94 now. And uh, they, uh, they marched in in a procession and they called out names. And Sister Antoninus, 75 years, this little nun, still in a habit, not, I, when, they ch- when, when the nuns let go of wearing a habit, people I think who had been uh, professed for so many years couldn't do it. So the Little old nuns that were the first four of them were in habits, and their uh, clothing became more and more contemporary as as they came. It was wonderful because the first person in was Sister Antonina, seventy five years, and the last one was um, a woman who has now finished twenty five years. So there are fifty years difference in dedicated, steadfast. It was it was tremendously it was it was wonderful. Seventeen women. Uh, I counted up. There were Sister Antonina seventy five years, three women seventy years, eight women fifty years, three women two women forty years, and one twenty five years. So I counted up all those numbers and I did the arithmetic. Then I counted up. Uh, there were uh, ten women who had they lived would have been 
jubilarians of different numbers. So I added in numbers for them. Came out to about a thousand years. A thousand years of a dedication of the heart to teaching about love and peace and open-heartedness and service and non-self-centeredness. And it was an extraordinary feeling in that church. Just really, everybody's liturgy is the same. I thought to myself in the middle, I would have made a really good Catholic. (laughs) You know, I think of myself as a really good Buddhist, and I'm also a really good Jew. But it seems also arbitrary. I mean, (laughs) I knew how to say everything that they said. Uh, I knew how to say it in Pali, and I knew how to say it in Hebrew. And I could hear the teachings on Dukkha Nishanata, on, on um, suffering and impermanence and non-separateness on connection in the things that they taught and the things that they said, and even the form of the liturgy and the way in which it's uh, constructed in order to, uh, my senses, allow people to come to that place where their hearts are at ease. And they're able to feel both at home in their own lives, present and awake and alive, and then ready to rededicate themselves again to work in the world and to connection. And I think we do it here. We do it quieter here. Something very beautiful about the music and the form that lifts you up. The forms are different, but I really think that human beings universally have the same heart. I, I actually don't think that. I absolutely trust that. I, that, that. That's one of those things. Sometimes people say to me, um, um, y- do you believe that, uh, when they're questioning any one of my lineages, uh, so sometimes people use the word believe, they say, do you believe that, or... Actually, uh, uh, the somewhat more difficult question begins, surely you don't believe that. (laughs) And uh, believe is a very hard word. So I, 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 um, now I tell you my my secret of how I do this. I don't do the believe word back. I say, what I trust as part of my experience is, because that's unimpeachable. Who can say something about that? If you say, it is my experience that... It is my experience that when my mind is clear and I am not frightened and I can see and understand what's happening, I'm really kind, and so is everybody else. That's what I think. That's what I trust is true. We have uh, all kinds of um, um, differences in uh, religious lineages in what we say. Let's think about it. There are certainly lines. I saw all the ways in which religious lineages are saying the same message. And there are certainly parochial lines that say, we have the way. But I know them in all my other parishes as well, you know. That, uh, and I thought to myself, I was having such a good mood that uh, I thought to myself, well, if you have a religious lineage, you have to say this is the way. It wouldn't make any sense to say, well, welcome, uh, friends, we have one of the really good ways in the world. I mean, it's just not excited enough. 
if you if you want if you want to make a point, you want to sing hymns that say how lucky we are to have this or that, and see so you want to make a deal about ours is the way. You know, I want to remind you that the the uh, the mindfulness sutta, the sutta on the foundations of mindfulness, begins. And the venerable one sat down in a grove, and he said, uh, "Here, O monks, is the sole way to to the end of grief and lamentation, to liberation." He didn't say this is a pretty good way or <laughs> find a good way in other places. This is the sole way. We translate it. Uh, you'll find it in that little in that little book of uh, uh, contemporary renditions of Buddhism that so many people have. It's translated as, um, um, this, O oh friends, is a, here, O oh friends, is a very good way. So we, but, you know. I felt quite at home there. I think that the feeling at home is not that I was that in another lifetime. Who knows? Maybe. Or that, uh, uh, Mary has been my friend for a long time, so I'm quite comfortable in churches and at masses. So, but I don't think that either. I actually think the at-homeness is feeling that I shared with, uh, the people there that I didn't know at all and with many of the community members who I do know and even those that I don't know. Without saying it, the commitment to uh, trusting that that kindness and love and compassion and peace are the inherent birthrights of human beings. I took a bite of the sandwich and I passed it to my friends, is what we are all equipped to do. Without barring anybody from that friendship. At the very end, uh, the whole members of the community, these 17 women, and probably 50 women from... The the Dominicans are mostly on the West Coast, but Dominicans from all over, at least 50 of them, stood up together as the last part of the ceremony and st- said aloud the mission statement of the order of the Dominican Sisters of San Rafael. So I won't read you the mission statement, although if I took out the parochial words and put in the word truth each time it says that, they would be things that we could all say. I'll read the last three lines of it. Um, Recognizing, uh, bringing the truth to bear with depth and compassion on the critical issues of our times. Who of us could not say that, that we dedicate ourselves to that? And then the whole of the church stood up and uh, said the vision statement that they have at the end of that. We reverence and affirm the inherent dignity of each person. We will work for transformation of attitudes and systems that deprive any person of dignity. Imagine if everybody's parish got up and said that at the end of service, every week, every day. We have a sign outside here that you probably pass by. Everyone is welcome here. Spirit Rock Meditation Center is committed to diversity. We have always been. But the sign is about a year old, I think, because it became important to us to say so visibly out loud. It wasn't a change. It was just that that needs to be said in the world as many places as it can be said, 
even where I figure it to be implicit and understood. I read the paper yesterday morning. I've been telling people, I read the paper every day. Uh, I've been telling people that it's uh, a principal part of my spiritual practice these days. Uh, I say it quite seriously uh, because it's so hard to read the newspaper and see what is happening and not become um, either demoralized or angry, desperate, lose faith, lose hope, to be able to read what's happening in the world. There's a headline on a whole on an article on the front page of yesterday's New York Times uh, about the proposed war on Iraq. I don't remember a time in my lifetime where war wasn't a surprise. You know that uh, people's. I mean, I remember suddenly that this country was in World War II, but you know they didn't. You know, they didn't announce in the paper we're thinking about going to war for a long time. But to sort of say, well, we're now planning to have a war uh, in Iraq and going back and forth about it. And it still seems quite ordinary to read it. But yesterday's newspaper, the headline was Profound Effect on Economy Seen in a War on Iraq. And U.S. may bear most costs. Experts weigh likelihood of an oil price shock and other disruptions of markets. It doesn't say anything about people getting killed. On either side, it just said that the markets might be upset in a war. Yeah, I read it carefully. <laughs> there's another article. So you tell me if this gets to be too much. I feel like um, my text for today's talk was yesterday's New York Times. Um, there's a photo of um, women in a mosque in Hebron looking out a window, um, overlooking the funeral of the sister of one of these women, 25-year-old woman, whose 14-year-old sister was getting buried because she was uh, shot the day before, not on purpose, but in the line of fire. Of She was the youngest of nine children and shot as she sat on a staircase while Jewish settlers hurled stones and opened fire at Arab homes during the funeral of Elazar Leibovich. He was a sergeant in the Israeli army and among four settlers who were killed by Palestinian gunmen in a roadside ambush on Friday. Successive funerals it talks about here. In the end of this... Uh, article tells about the, all the sisters and brothers of this child talking about how wonderful she had been. The Israeli defense minister called the settlers rampage on Sunday, a Jewish riot. This is terribly painful. It's terribly painful for everybody to read. It's enormously painful for me as a Jew to read. It's tremendously painful. And then Mr. Uh, ben Eliezer said, um, it's just as well the army and the Israeli police brought it under control, he said on Israeli army radio. Otherwise, something terrible could have happened. Something terrible did happen. That 14-year-old girl died. It was terrible. It's extremely hard to read the paper 
and not become angry or desperate. It's a lifelong work trying to keep the truth in focus and um, not flinch. Even when it has to do, even when it gets more painful because it's your people doing something that's not right. Somehow, getting mad about other people doing things that aren't right. It's a way of keeping the body alive. Even revenge makes the mind excited, not desperate. I also thought a lot about the idea of um, establishing the mind in peace. And sometimes there's the idea about spiritual practice. It's an untrue idea completely that meditation creates a quiescent mind, that people meditate in order to somehow get out of this world. And uh, I think it was a notion that maybe people had, oh, 30 years ago when, when meditation was getting interesting in the United States, or all kinds of, um, oh, cartoons, actually, of people meditating and birds building nests in their hair and um, beards growing down to the ground because they somehow were in some altered space and they forgot about shaving or combing or uh, somehow that it was to retreat to some other world and just wait for the body to cool, I suppose. But uh, it was not... Not an engaged kind of life. It was a retreat from the engagement of the world. And it's so clear to me from the beginning that that's not true. I remember in, um, I'm feeling very confirmed in that view, and this must be a 25-year-old story at least, at um, a meeting in San Francisco of the uh, some big conference in a hotel, probably the Association for Transpersonal Psychology, in its early days, where psychologists who were also meditators and uh, had in some way identified themselves with having a spiritual tradition uh, had come together for one of their early conferences. And George Leonard, a noted teacher here in Marin County, was the opening keynote speaker. And so he did uh, the kind of demographics that a keynote speaker would do if they were opening a conference in a big hotel, ballroom filled with probably 400 people, and he said, how many people here, uh, first he did the easy demographics, how many people here live in the Bay Area? Okay, so how many people uh, live in uh, California? How many people live in the west of the Mississippi? So the easy, everybody knows where they live, so you're one place or another. And um, then how many people have a, a physical discipline? that they do every day, like running or yoga or um, Aikido, uh, um, any kind of a Tai Chi, physical discipline that they do every single day. And, you know, a certain number of people, maybe a third, half the people in the room. How many people here? Um, I think I don't remember, actually, if he had said uh, our therapists were in therapy. If he did, he probably would have said the California joke of, well, of course, everybody is. Uh, uh, both, probably. But, uh, uh, but uh, I do remember that he said, how many people here have a 
meditative discipline. How many people here meditate every day? And a lot of hands went up. I mean, these are the people, the folks who would have come to that conference. So a lot of people, physical discipline, a lot of people, most probably uh, contemplative discipline. He said, how many people voted in last November's presidential election? Everyone. The entire room. I was so pleased about that. I didn't, I wasn't surprised, but I was, ab- but I was absolutely confirmed in that that this does not take us away from the world. It puts us right in the middle of it with eyes open. In my family, when I grew up, voting was a religious act. Really, it was. In, uh, and this was New York City before, um, before absentee ballots. I mean, here, if I'm out of town, which I sometimes am uh, for an election, I vote by absentee ballot. But everybody had to go to the polls and it was November, so the weather was often bad. And my mother was quite physically compromised in her health. And every single member of my family voted. It was a religious obligation. And I went to the, uh, the polls with my mother. This was one of the great bonding experiences of my life. We'd go with my mother into the voting booth. It was like a mysterious initiation. And pull the curtain around. And, and in New York, the ballots were quite complicated because... You voted with, a, with key ballots, you know, you pushed levers down. And um, I'm just realizing that Tony's back there. Tony knows quite a lot about elections and, and, and voting, so he'll appreciate this. They had very long ballots because they had many parties running. And uh, you had to find where you were and pull down the little levers right next to your candidates, and you didn't have to vote the same. Obviously, you could vote here, 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 here. And my mother voted very carefully. Um, both of my parents had quite liberal politics. My mother's somewhat more liberal than my father's. And the one moment in my childhood where she was voting across, and then voted in a way that my father probably didn't, and uh, she looked down at me at that point, and I I think I was not more than nine or ten, and she said, don't tell daddy. <laughs> and it, was, it was a great bonding experience of my life. Um, the jokes in my family are how, how, uh, were renditions in a, sweet, in a sweet way. People would do uh, imitations of my grandparents reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, because that's what you had to do at the citizenship test. And they spoke English very poorly. And, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance is hard to say if you speak English well, but poorly. So they would do renditions of Grandpa saying, I pledge allegiance, or this one thing. But everybody pledged, everybody got their citizenship, and everybody voted. And I have never, I, I, I came of age in, to vote in 1960, was the first election I voted for. Um, and I have never not voted in an election since. The smallest thing, the in-between elections that nobody goes to, I vote by absentee ballot. It, it's absolutely a matter of, um, it's a vow you vote. If you get a chance to choose, you choose. It's a very big thing. Talk a lot about freedom, but here we have a political system that whatever is flawed about it, even that the voting systems may sometimes not work as well as we'd like them to, we have the possibility of voting, and I am bound to vote. Mm-hmm. In, um, 
It must have been 1962, just after, about a year after I'd moved to Marin County, just after the birth of my fourth child, um, I joined um, the, women, the Marin chapter of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. I think of them as being very strongly uh, responsible for my religious formation. When you join a religious order, you have religious formation. The average age of the women in the Marin chapter of the WILPF was about 80 at the time. (laughs) And uh, I was 26. And... And they lived. Uh, one of their one of their uh, key members lived just down the street from me, and Martha invited me to join, and uh, I joined. I think they were delighted with me because I think I represented for them someone who was going to live into the future, and uh, I was very good about going to meetings. And they were they were staunch old women. They were great old women. I feel myself now really living those women's hope into the future. And they said, we need to increase the membership here. Uh, we need to attract some young women here. So let's have a tea and invite young women. So they had a tea, and we all invited women, and they invited women, younger women. A lot of people came to the tea. And uh, they, they had decided, they had served tea and sandwiches, and they decided that as the uh, program for the evening, they would tell the history of the W-I-L-P-F, and especially the Marin chapter of. So I remember one of them uh, reading from their scrapbook there. Well, in 1918, we wrote a letter to the president saying, Dear President Wilson, we really feel it's important for this country to disarm. And I thought, ah, they shouldn't be reading this. Everybody will be so discouraged. No one will join. 1918, they were writing letters, and we are armed to the teeth. This is now 1962. Why are they reading this? You know, this. But I'm thinking of this. 40 years later, the letter writing didn't help. But you know, I think the letter writing helped. I think it helped the writers. I think that they felt they were doing something. And I think maybe those writers were the parents or the grandparents of the people I was marching with in peace marches in the 1960s, or they were the parents or the grandparents of the people who were registering voters in Mississippi. They're certainly the grandparents of the feminist movement. They said what they meant. I feel that so strongly about us saying what we meant. We need that sign outside that says Spirit Rock is committed to diversity so that the whole world will put signs outside and say we are committed to diversity. So it'll be the thing that we all say. You know, uh, this was just after the McCarthy era and uh, if you belong to an organization that has letters like WILPF, People say, oh, it's a communist organization. It was actually founded by Jane Addams, who was a social worker, and it started Hull House. You know, sometimes I think to myself, um, I, 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 I'll, I'll say my faith, say, my faith belief is, I have faith that if enough people speak out, if enough people say this is what's true, if enough people say the world has to invite everyone into supper, um, 
I remember just after 9-11, I heard the ecumenical church service on the radio that happened the following Sunday in San Francisco. And uh, I think it was Dean Jones of Grace Cathedral, pretty sure, who said, um, everybody should go to church this Sunday or this weekend. He said, but don't go to your own. Go to somebody else's. Go to somebody else. If you go to a synagogue, go to a church. If you go to a church, go to a mosque. If you go to a mosque, go to someplace else. Go to somebody else's church and pray for peace. Suppose we suddenly said, okay, now, we're all going to do that for a while. I remember I met a friend of mine just after that, a very close and dear friend, and I admitted to the fact that, I mean, as everyone was, feeling enormous pain and not not exclusively, although certainly in connection with the enormity of what had happened in New York, but in recognition of the enormous amount of suffering in the world, the, 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 the despair and the trauma that I think we all feel didn't start on that day. That was not the beginning of a problem. It was a strong wake-up bell about the problem in the world of so much suffering that isn't being recognized and isn't being responded to in the right way. The, the ideology of 9-11 roots all over the world in the enormous amount of suffering that's the result of greed and hatred and confusion. And I said, uh, and talking to my friend, I said, you know, I'm, I'm so frightened by the amount of pain in the world that sometimes I think to myself, Suffering is so limitless, the pain in the world is so extreme, the weapons of destruction are so numerous. Maybe we should just give up. My friend said, just in the clearest way, he said, that's not an option. (laughs) Yeah, and and it it was like such a major wisdom statement. It's not an option. It's not an option. A dry sandwich went by, the waters are rising, I took a bite, and I gave it to my friend. That's what we do. We have that option up till the last minute. Until the last minute, there is not an option to opt out. A couple of weeks ago, I think I read it here, uh, there was a whole page article in the New York Times concerned American Jews making a statement about what they would like people to know that they feel about the Middle East. Remember I read it here? The beginning of it, is a certain number of, we hold these truths to be inviolable, inviolate. And the first statement is, um, uh, we consider, we affirm that the lives of Israelis and the lives of Palestinians are equally valuable. That doesn't seem to me such a far out statement. That seems a given. And yet, I've made that statement teaching in different places in the last several weeks. And I see that there's a startle in people. Seems to me to be given. And there's a startle in me when I see that I startle people because I am not by nature a confrontative person, but I am so determined that I just override the startle. Something to say and I want to say it. I think the startle in the people that startle well, I'll tell you a story about me. I don't know why they startled, but I'll tell you a story about me. It happened not so long ago. I became suddenly completely irritable and impatient and 
intolerant, right in the middle of a diversity meeting. Can you imagine? And I <laughs> the particular person talking on, even that I say talking on means already, I felt that the particular person talking on in a very confrontative way, in a way that I felt was blaming or whatever. And uh, suddenly I could feel my mind making rebuttals to this particular person's remarks. Um, Maybe you could think about other people's suffering. Your suffering is not the only suffering in the world. The whole world is suffering. Really, not good-spirited remarks. Didn't feel good to be thinking them. Didn't say them, but I felt miserable even about thinking them. Um, Even as I tell you the story now, I'm a little embarrassed about it. But on the other hand, I think uh, I take some consolation in the fact that I think it's my good heart that is um, distressed to feel myself thinking an intolerant thought. Like, that's enough. Other people have problems. If I had not been startled, if I had not felt perhaps rebuked, even more than that, maybe I would have been able to see clearly that there's no way of evaluating pain of other people. Say, your pain shouldn't be happening, or your pain is less than my pain. Your pain is not as valuable pain. Pain is pain, period, what I think. Also, stories about who triumphed over pain is also not valuable. You know, that there are wonderful stories about um, Nelson Mandela um, survived years of prison and still his heart was loving, is loving and good. Dalai Lama lost his whole country and his heart stays committed to compassion. Actually, uh, sometimes those stories demoralize me when I see that my own heart doesn't stay so good all the time. But what happened with me is I thought a lot about that experience afterwards and why my heart hadn't been so good. And I realized that I I get frightened when I'm confronted with enormity of pain and I feel helpless about it and can't do something about it. And when I'm frightened, my mind is confused. And my mind is confused. It it can't really handle its own pain and its own things, its own wounds that are yet unhealed. And it's when my wounds that are unhealed and my sources of suffering cause me pain that I'm not able to listen to other people's pain clearly. We're all in tremendous pain. seems like, how are we going to get um, to a place where we can feel comfortable enough with each other to trust each other as holders of our pain so we can tell the truth about it, all of us, and make nobody's pain trivial. All lives equally valuable. Nobody's pain more worthy of compassion than anybody else's. Got an email 
from a friend of mine. I'd like to read it to you. It's very hard to read. From a friend of mine. From a friend of his. In Israel. Um, last, um, written in the middle of the, uh, on, on July 24th, Wednesday, actually. I am posting this on one email, so this is a group email. As you probably know, Israel bombed Gaza last night in order, quote, to get rid, unquote, of the one highest ranking Hamas leaders, which the Israeli Air Force succeeded in doing. Unfortunately, the bomb used also killed a dozen innocent people, some of them kids. I also heard that the Hamas leader's daughter and one of his wives was amongst those murdered. 150 people were wounded. It's all over the news, national and international. I am in such pain, so frustrated, so ashamed, so helpless. How could this be happening? How could the orders to do such an atrocious thing be passed down from the government leaders to the Air Force officers? It is beyond my comprehension, way beyond my ability to grasp that this occurred in the name of peace. I can't see any logic in this. I see only the pain, the anguish, the hurt, the ridiculous eye-to-eye tactics that the idiots who are running this country are using. I need to apologize. I need to ask forgiveness from all those killed and injured. I need people to know that this is so wrong, and there are others here in Israel who too feel that this is not the way to peace. Please hear our voices. Please listen. Hold our prayers for hope and peace. Even though the leaders are blind and deaf to our cries, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I am so sorry, and I am so ashamed. It is terrible. The idea that we, in, in, in this time in the history of the world, do anything but talk to each other and talk long enough to work it out. Three-year-olds, we say, use your words. Three-year-old that falls on the floor and does kicking. I see that my children, who are much better at uh, parenting language than I knew about being, um, say things like, use your words. I am prepared to listen. Use your words. But don't hit. And then we get to be at a certain point. We say, okay, now we hit. Say, contemplating a war in Iraq. Now we'll hit. We spend a lot of time, and probably we'll have to spend the rest of our lives um, apologizing, all of us, for the different things that we or our kin are doing or have done to anybody else or their kin. There, I have friends who are members of a Christian community in Israel, who a uh, devout Christian community whose mission since the last 55, 57 years, has been to care for Holocaust survivors who have no families. And uh, the people that I know who run it now were not born during World War II. It's the, um, they are apologizing for their grandparents. I think that in this country, we need to be apologizing for grandparents and their grandparents, even if they weren't actually our grandparents. You know, we need to all be apologizing to the whole world. There isn't a, any way in which any one of us, in some way, isn't inextricably linked 
to what everyone else is doing. I think to myself a lot about what have I passed up today that could have made a difference in the world. I'm getting even more punctilious about the hunger site. Do you go online on the hunger site every day and donate rice? You can. It's you, all you have to do is click on a certain place and donate a half a cup of rice. And while you watch that place, the map lights up for, uh, uh, or gets dark in one or another country every six seconds to let you know that every six seconds a child has died of starvation. And, uh, and uh, while you're clicking to give your half a cup of rice, you see the companies that are donating the half a cup of rice. So that's some advertising for, um, I've even forgotten now, I should pay more attention. <laughs> Eddie Bauer, I think. Uh, I'm just, I, you know, I, in truth, I go on, I donate my rice, and I get off. But I have a rule about I donate the rice before I read the email. Um, so that way I remember to do it because I'm always in a hurry to read the email. So if I have a thing I have to do first, it becomes a religious rule. You know, somehow, I think I thought about this talk today, and I thought, I wonder if I'm going to sound demoralized, but I want to tell you I come through with my faith intact. Um... Not in spite of my anguish, but because of it. I can't bear to think that my kin are the cause of suffering. Um, or that I, indirectly, by not having addressed it sooner, better, am. Or that any of us is the cause of other people's suffering. Um, I feel I, there's a certain way in which I feel I, I need to be a part of everybody's demonstration at this point. Um, I used to march a lot in peace marches in the 60s, and then I stopped marching. I had, I had a lot of children at home. I had a whole professional career. Uh, there weren't so much marching happening for a while. I marched in a march in Santa Rosa a month ago, and... Uh, you know, I thought about it, and I thought it was not so risky. Santa Rosa, it's a short march. It was a flat terrain. Uh, <laughs> Santa Rosa is a benign kind of community. There aren't, you know, it's not too contentious. But it was great to be out there getting counted in some way. For the Santa Rosa community, you're out and you're counted. You know, it's even different from going online and signing the emails online and signing the petitions online. Getting your body out, I realize, counts a lot. I thought maybe I'm coming into a different place in my life. Maybe I'm coming to a place where I bring my body out a lot more than I used to. And, um, stand on more corners with the women in black and um, talk out more than what I have to do. I think my teaching has changed since last year. Um, maybe that part of the 9-11 legacy for me is... Uh, not that the problem didn't exist before that or that I didn't know about it. The greed and hatred and delusion are really... But uh, that my sense that there's... Uh, my sense of urgency about it. You know, the Buddha said, we are playing in the attic, many of us, and the house is on fire. <laughs> and 
I'm starting to really sense that that urgency is what I need to talk about. Um, I'd, I'd like to think about the word activist in the same phrase as compassionate activist, you know, that um, even contemplative activist. I could be a contemplative activist. I, one of my great uh, religious icons is uh, Thomas Merton, who did his activism, did his front lines, activism from inside of Gethsemane Monastery by what he wrote. So I'm going to take my body out probably and stand on more street corners and march in more parades, but I'll also be here. Uh, I'll, I'll do whatever I can do wherever I can do, but I have to get seen and heard and uh, manifest myself and talk about things that startle people and talk about my own pain and my own dismay and keep on telling the truth because I don't know another thing to do. And I think about it as not being on behalf of other people, you know. I think about it on uh, behalf, really, it's maybe on behalf of my own, my own people or my own children or my own grandchildren. This is Martin Nemo, a Lutheran minister in Berlin in the time of the Second World War. In Germany, they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me, and by that time, no one was left to speak up. So, one last thing. It was an article in uh, yesterday's paper as well. Uh, the headline is, Israeli-Palestinian battles intrude on Sesame Street. <laughs> so apparently there have been, um, four years ago, Sesame Street began broadcasting an Israeli-Palestinian co-production conceived in the afterglow of the 1993 Oslo Accords. Seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? Um, the collaboration produced 70 half-hour shows, each one containing Hebrew and Arabic segments, that were broadcast to receptive audiences. But under a new co-production agreement, which now includes Jordanians, the project has been run in, has run into difficulty. The name Sesame Street has been changed to Sesame Stories because the concept of a place where people and puppets from those three groups can mingle freely has become untenable. The original shows were built around the notion that Israeli and Palestinian children as well as puppets, might become friends. Now, reflecting the somber news in the Middle East, mood, mood in the Middle East, producers see their best hope as helping children to humanize their historic enemies through separate but parallel stories. And then here's the quote that really touched me. From Charlotte Cole, Vice President of International Research for the Sesame Workshop in New York. She said, we realized that the goal of friendship was beyond realism, given where things are now. And I, th I thought about that, and I thought, is the goal of friendship beyond realism, really? Can we ever get to a place where we say we give up on being friends? And in the same newspaper where someone says, I took a bite of the sandwich, and I passed it to my friend. I don't think we can give up on being friends. I want to recite the Metta Sutta part of it for you, just the end of it. 
May no one deceive another or despise anyone for any reason. Just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts with loving kindness towards all beings, above and below and all around, radiating limitlessly in all directions. I can't imagine that we have any option but continuing to believe that this very small planet could get to be everybody's home. So I'd like for us to really hope that for a minute together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.